welcome to Regeneratively Speaking, a podcast brought to you by the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I'm Katherine Drinkett. And I'm Joshua Huntsberger. In each episode, we bring you interviews with guest researchers and our institute's faculty covering the latest cutting-edge research on regenerative medicine. Today we have Dr. Harry Salem, who has uh, more than 60 years experience in the fields of pharmacology and toxicology as a researcher, educator, and mentor. His current role is the Chief Scientist of Life Sciences at the U.S. Army Research, Development, and Engineering Command's Edgewood Chemical Biological Center, or ECBC. Welcome. Thank you. So we know at a young age you became interested in uh, science. What was that life experience that led you in this uh, direction? That's a very interesting question. Uh, When I was a little boy, my grandmother, my mother's mother, lived with us. When I was at a very early age, my grandmother was diagnosed with tuberculosis. In those days, they put people in a sanitarium, and uh, she felt that uh, they were just trying to take her away. And my older brother and I, we were both too young to visit her. So my mother would take us to visit her, and we'd have to watch her and look at her through the window. And at that time, I said to myself, when I grow up, I'm going to do research and prevent this sort of thing from happening. And of course, I knew nothing about what research was, (laughs) and I sort of fell into it. And then as I progressed in my years of research, my research actually led me into the inhalation field, which was very appropriate. So things actually turned out the way I would have liked them to without my even knowing it. Yeah, that's amazing. That's such an interesting story. We know that you did uh, progress in in your studies and during your graduate work at the University of Toronto, um, you worked on the breathalyzer blood alcohol level test which is used now to determine driver's sobriety. Could you talk about this early work? Yes, this was very interesting, and I found out later on that one of my colleagues here, Tom Shoup, his grandfather was on the advisory committee that made sure I got funded. (laughs) And also the head of our laboratory, Ward Smith, was on that committee as well. And this was very interesting at first the breathalyzer followed two other instruments. This one was much better. It was developed by a police lieutenant, Lieutenant Borkenstein, who later got his PhD and became a professor at the University of Indiana, I believe. Anyway, uh, the, they were too expensive to have in every police car, so what they did is what at an accident scene or when they suspected someone of drinking and driving, they had him blow into a latex rubber balloon and take it to the police station and have it tested in the instrument. Anyway, in most instances, it took a half hour to an hour to get there, and by that time, there was no alcohol left in the rubber balloon, and the policeman would swear up and down. I could smell the alcohol on his breath. He was acting like he was drunk, and he was drunk, but there was no evidence. So the first thing we did was we looked at various plastics. We looked at polyethylene, and we found that the half-life for alcohol in the polyethylene was about, uh, uh, I think it was two hours. And uh, so that didn't work very well either, but it was better than the rubber, which had a uh, uh, half-life of uh, uh, 15 minutes for the alcohol. 
And then saran became available, and we had trouble sealing it and making a bag out of it. But the Institute of Aviation Medicine had an instrument that could seal the bag. So we made a blow-through bag where we could collect the alveolar air, that's the last portion of air, which had the uh, concentration of alcohol in the alveolar air, which was similar to that of breath. The relationship, I believe, was one milliliter of blood contained the equivalent of uh, 21,000 uh, milliliters of air. Anyway, uh, so we sealed that as a blow-through bag, and we sealed the ends, and uh, the alcohol in there was uh, almost uh, the same for almost two days. Uh, wow. So that was very good. And then we did correlation studies on that. And this was my first experience with the press as well. <laughs> I came home from one of our cocktail parties. After school, we had cocktail parties where we let these people eat uh, hors d'oeuvres and drink for two hours. And at that point, they stopped the drinking, and uh, we took blood and compared it to the breath samples, and we did our correlation studies that way. Uh, when I came home from one of these parties, I answered the telephone, and I still remember, fell on the other end and said, I'm looking for Harry Salem. And I said, that's me. And he said, my name is Jack Gale. I'm with the Toronto Star, and I'm interested in what you're doing with students and alcohol. And I said, well, I'm sorry you got the wrong guy. And he said, don't be smart with me. I know exactly what you're doing, and if you don't <laughs> tell me, I'll print what I think you're doing, and you'll never be able to retract it. Well, I didn't sleep that night, and I went and told my boss in the morning, Dr. <laughs> Lucas, and he said, just have him call me, which he did. And they made arrangements, and then Dr. Lucas told me I had two weeks to finish my studies. Well, after that two weeks, uh, when I walked into the lab one morning, Dr. Lucas said, have a seat. And he threw a newspaper at me and said, have you seen this? <laughs> this was the headlines of the study. <laughs> Anyway, I got a call from the president of the university to come and visit, and there were a bunch of people in there, including Dr. Lucas, and uh, he said to me, you know, we don't give exclusive interviews, and I said, well, I didn't give any. Anyway, to make a long story short, uh, the uh, writer from the Globe and Mail, which was the other newspaper in Toronto at the time, said... Uh, I'm interested in the story, and I said, I'd be glad to sit with you, and he said, no thanks, I'll read the story from the Toronto Star, which he did. His headline said, students booze at government expense. So that was my ex first experience with the press. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but that was interesting. We tried to establish a legal load limit, like they have a legal speed limit. You know, some people can tolerate that and others. But I only had one 234 pound policeman that was on his feet following that amount of, all, the amount of alcohol that we considered a legal load at the time. Wow. Your early career in industry and academia led to numerous advances, including incubators for premature babies, to um, labor in, induction drug, to cough medicine, and even for uh, continuous wear soft uh, contact lenses. What was it like developing these advances that are part of our everyday lives today? Well, it was very interesting. And first of all, with the incubators, the incubator was already available. What we did is we added infrared lights on the top, 
with a thermistor on the baby's body and when the temperature went down the lights went on very similar to what you see in restaurants now when they keep your uh, dinner warm and that, that was very interesting and very exciting and I worked with engineers then see at that time we didn't interact with other disciplines you know I, I interacted with other pharmacologists and toxicologists now in the stem cell world that we're working where we're working with engineers the field is moving so quickly and that's exciting yeah but and, to be um, able to see all of these things that you've worked on and now they're commonplace like cough medicine and uh, NyQuil or I mean I have contact lenses in my eyes right now oh, um, fantastic it, it, it's just I would think it would be very gratifying to, to say like I um, Helped advance those. Well, it, it those was really exciting, and I had great mentors. I really did, and I listened, and I learned. And you know, unless you s fail, you can't succeed. But <laughs> but it was fun, and we developed when I worked at the University of Pennsylvania, at that time, and with with Dr. Aviato there, we had developed a new theory for the initiation of the cough reflex, and Dr. Bickerman, who was a physician, proved it in humans. And I said at the time to Dr. Aviato, after we published this, I said, I guess we'll spend the rest of our research career proving or disproving it. He says, oh no, other people will spend their lives proving through and disproving. <laughs> we'll go on to more exciting things, which we did. And uh, when I went to SmithKline and we developed contact and we put them in the tiny little time pills. But then we also developed a drug like uh, with acetaminophen for headaches, which is like Tylenol, and put it in the tiny little time pills. We couldn't sell it. People didn't believe they had a long-acting headache. Once it was gone, it was gone. And uh, then from there, I was hired by Richardson Merrill to work for the Vic company. We came out with NyQuil. And we used to joke in those days that we should have a DayQuil. 25 <laughs> years later, they did. <laughs> And, uh, and with the soft contact lenses, I was with Cooper Lab, and that was very exciting. We had a drug for intractable glaucoma, which was an injection into the eye, and that was a difficult thing. It had to be done in an operating room. And uh, we were having some studies, clinical studies going on in the Philippines. And so I went to visit there and uh, examine the studies, and uh, while I was there, I enrolled in medical school, and uh, I was invited. I was an extra in the in the Apocalypse Now film. Actually, they offered me a real part, but because of the time, I I couldn't accept it. <laughs> but uh, that was very exciting. And uh, anyway, we were looking uh, for this drug on uh, intractable glaucoma. Merck came out with Tim Optic, and so there was no need for this. That solved the problem just with with uh, drops but it's been exciting and now that I've gotten and working with the people here with Tony Atala and the guys here at uh, Wake Forest these guys are brilliant you know the uh, I just read an article in art by uh, Mary Barra she's the CEO of General Motors and they quoted her she was talking about collaboration she says individually they're all smart but collectively, they're brilliant. And I find that working with you guys, and we are working uh, also with Harvard and Hopkins and the University of Michigan, my alma mater for mm -hmm. pharmacy. And uh, 
it's really exciting and I feel like a little boy in a toy store <laughs> and I think this is the future of medicine I really do yeah I agree because when you collaborate you bring together um, different perspectives different skill sets yes um, and it's it's imperative with the type of challenges that that we're presented with you need to have um, the collective thinking is fantastic yeah. And it's more than just additive, it really expands the knowledge. Yeah, I agree. Well, we know in your work you have also uh, served as a consultant um, for federal government organizations including the U.S. Attorney General, FBI, Environmental Protection Agency, Department of Homeland Security, and Congress. Can you highlight some of these experiences and how they may um, have led you to your current position at ECBC? Yes, I've had a lot of opportunities. Uh, uh, I was told to be a consultant to Janet Reno. She's a very bright lady. And uh, I had very nice interactions with her. She knew exactly what she wanted to know. And uh, that was very well. And also, uh, I received the Society of Toxicology uh, Science Fellowship in 2001 where I served as a consultant to Congress. And I was in, in Mr. Jim Greenwood's office. And he was in charge of uh, EPA, FDA, and things like that. And that was a very exciting time. And we had, he had scheduled a hearing on bioterrorism preparedness for September the 11th. And when I went up to the uh, meeting room, there was a guard there that said, uh, there's been an incident, you better go back to your office. This was when the first plane hit the towers. Mm -hmm. wow. And uh, the, so the meeting was postponed mm -hmm. for another day. It was very bad times. And everybody from Congress, I was in the Rayburn building, I believe, that's where my office was. Everybody disappeared. They have a place, an underground place where all of Congress goes. Yeah. And the next day when I was in the office, uh, Jim Greenwood came in. He said, what are you doing here? I said, I came to work. But they had all stayed away. Now, anyway, the day of the event when they evacuated the building, uh, I went outside, and one of the gals was going to drive me to the train station to go back to my job at uh, Edgewood. And the police had blocked the streets. And they said there was an incident at the train station. Nothing was running. And we were all in the park across from the Union Station. And we were advised to move because that plane that uh, went down in, uh, outside of Philadelphia, was they thought, was heading for Congress. Mm. So they cleared the streets there. And uh, my office could not reach me. My wife and son could not reach me. Uh, they actually got me... Uh, about one o'clock in the afternoon, one o'clock or two o'clock. And of course there were no trains running, so I was stuck there for a while. But that was a very sad day when all those things happened. Yeah. And uh, Homeland Security has uh, an office in our area there and I consult to them. I've consulted to them for a number of years. There's been a lot of opportunities uh, and I've uh, written several books while I was there and uh, it's been exciting. I went there temporarily 31 years mm -hmm. ago and I'm still there. Yeah. But we have a lot of good people. We do a lot of good work. 
and uh, we never looked for any uh, p uh, PR or anything like that. What we did was uh, quiet and uh, that, and uh, there's still a lot to do. No shortage there. <laughs> no, no. So, so we know ECBC has been protecting the U.S. from chemical weapons since 1917. Could you provide us with some history about this organization for the general audience? Yes. At one time we did everything, but in 1969, when President Nixon was around, he stopped all uh, aggressive work. Everything became defensive, and no biological work was done at that time. But we now do a chemical and biological defense, and we are the premier lab. We, uh, we have relationships with most of the uh, federal government organizations and with a lot of major universities. And it's the collaboration that uh, is really exciting, working with a lot of smart people. And as I say, the, uh, the knowledge it just it expands exponentially. It's really good. And the mentors, and including Dr. Atala, he's just fantastic. The way he runs the organization, he's got all these smart people working, and it's really a pleasure. And this is the highlight. I've had so many highlights, and, and th this is the major one. So, um, as we have all learned today, you have so many uh, accomplishments. What would you like your, your legacy to be? Well, I'd like to see the stem cell therapy being implemented. I'd like to see a lot of the people I've mentored become famous and do <laughs> this work. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just want to live a long life so that I can see these things. And uh, I'd like to see all these people I'm dealing with and you guys here, everybody succeed. Well, I thank you for the opportunity right. to interact with you guys. You guys have got a fantastic place here. You've got fantastic people. Your facilities are beautiful, magnificent. Well, thank you. Thank you. That's all for this episode. Be sure to listen next time for the latest in regenerative medicine. This podcast is a production of Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine, part of Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center. For more information, visit our website at www.wfirm.org. Org, or follow us on Facebook or Twitter at WFIRM News.